Everybody hear me? Good morning, church. It is good to be with you once again here this morning. Uh, I believe a solid biblical belief about the church, the local church, is that she is a colony planted here by Christ himself of pilgrims on a journey to heaven. And I truly believe that when we visit here, this is a place where pilgrims can rest and find rest in Jesus on their journey. Um, when Kyle asked me to come back uh, this year, I was here last year as well, I thought about the reasons why I would be invited back, and uh, I came to the conclusion that um, I can get y'all out of here quicker than your elders do and at the lunch table. So, anyway, it's it's good to be here with y'all once again. It's always a, a privilege and an honor to preach God's Word to God's people. And it's always a privilege and honor to be at my sister and brother-in-law's church. Thank you for having me. What is the gospel? I think that is a legitimate question. Many over the millennia of the church history have sought to answer this question. It's more, though, than a valid question. It is perhaps the most important topic that we can consider. Over the centuries of church history, the church has erred so often and got this question wrong that knowing the gospel... Understanding the gospel and the preaching of the gospel, the teaching of the gospel, not only from the pulpit, but in public discourse and especially discipling our children at home is of utmost importance. If we were to ask you, if I were to ask you this morning, take a a poll of the congregation and ask you what is the gospel. What would your answer be? If you turn to a portion of the scripture or a verse in the scripture or to, to answer that question, where would you go? I think most of us would probably go to John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is a, a beautiful picture of what God has done for us in the gospel. My mind goes to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. 1 Corinthians 15, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. I think I can speak for all of us when I say any definition of the gospel must include the cross of Jesus Christ, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. But what happened? What is the significance of the cross of Christ? To answer this question, we go to the Bible, God's inerrant, infallible, sufficient, inspired word. There are plenty of passages we could go to this morning, but I want to take you to Galatians chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 10 through 14 this morning. Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you, please, ask you, please, to stand 
in honor of the public reading of God's word. Galatians chapter 3, beginning with verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. You may be seated. May God bless the reading of his word. Galatians is a powerful book. Martin Luther, that great reformer, called Galatians my book. He loved it. It has similar themes to the book of Romans, justification by faith, a clear defense and explanation of the gospel. Both books deal with Christian living and responding to the work of God in the gospel. Scholars agree that Galatians was written before Romans, and although all books of the Bible are equally inspired and authoritative, I think we can see Galatians as almost a rough draft, Paul's rough draft for the book of Romans. The purpose of the book is a defense of the true gospel. It's interesting that at the beginning of the letter, when Paul writes an epistle, a letter to a church, typically he has a greeting, and he does have a greeting for the Galatian church, but what is missing is a greeting of thanksgiving. Not that he is not thankful for the Galatian church, he is, but there are more pressing matters at hand. And the pressing matter is that uh, the gospel is being compromised. They're being taught a false gospel and believing a false gospel. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to chapter 1 of Galatians. And we'll look at verse 6. Paul says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. Notice that Paul equates believing a false gospel, a different gospel from the biblical gospel, from the one he's preaching to abandoning Jesus. He doesn't say that you're abandoning a religion. He doesn't say that you're leaving a system of beliefs. He says you're leaving Jesus. Calvin says here, he charges him with turning aside not only from his gospel, but from Christ. The corruption of their doctrines was such as to leave them nothing more than an imaginary Christ. There are false teachers in the Galatian church, and they're spreading a false gospel. Namely, that Gentile followers of Jesus had to observe the Mosaic law in order to be right with God, in order to be saved. And Paul says we can't give in here. It must be Jesus plus nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. According to Paul, anything added to the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross was a different gospel. It's well known that those who study 
our currency. They don't spend their time studying the counterfeit currency. But they focus on the real article. And the point here is clear. If you know the genuine article, you can spot the false ones. So Paul takes the time to explain the true gospel, which teaches that we are justified, that we are right with God by faith. Let's look at chapter 2, beginning with verse 16. And in these scriptures, notice how much Paul says justified in faith over and over again. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the words of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even as we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Chapter 3, verse 2. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Chapter 3, verses 5 through 9. So then. Does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. So the context of our passage this morning is Paul is giving a defense of the gospel, and he is teaching the Galatian church about justification by faith. The question then becomes, how? How can sinful me be reconciled to holy God. I think we find our answer in our text this morning. There's a several key words or phrases that I want to draw your attention to this morning. I think if the original languages, the original text had bold print, these would be in bold in our text. Works of the law, curse, faith, Christ, redeemed, and blessing. We're going to look at all of these. Let's start With words of the law. You'll notice this phrase in verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law. The word law here, the works of the law, refers to the law of God. The Mosaic law we read in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, specifically Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. There's a debate over whether Paul means the ceremonial law, which is the festivals, the food laws, and specifically circumcision, which he does address here in Galatians. Does he mean that, or does he mean the moral law? And the answer is yes, he means both. Craig Keener, in his commentary, says, The issues at hand were especially those that particularly defined one as having become Jewish, most prominently Circumcision, But Paul's intent here is any of the law. Now, Paul is not saying that good works are bad. None of the reformers taught that either. In fact, later on in chapter 5 of this book, Paul is going to say that there is fruit of the Spirit that will evidence itself in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. What Paul is is saying here 
is that there's a difference between trusting in the fruit that God produces in our life and trusting in the root of the fruit that God produces in our lives. The ESV renders this, all who rely on the words of the law, which leads us to another word for today, and that is curse. Look at it with me. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. In other words, if we depend on our conformity, our obedience to God's revealed will, the word of God, then we are under a curse. Curse in the original can also be translated as doomed. What does it mean to be cursed? It is a terrible thing. Think back to Old Covenant Israel, Old Testament Israel, on the Day of Atonement. He had the great high priest. They would slaughter the bull. The priest would sprinkle the blood on the Ark of the Covenant. And then he would have two goats. He would slaughter one. And then the other goat was known as the scapegoat. And the priest would place his hand on the goat symbolically transferring the sins of the people of Israel to the goat, and the goat would be sent outside of the city limits, the city wall, symbolically transferring the sins of the people of Israel away from the people and away from God's presence among the people. And That goat would be banished to a life of solitude and to die alone. If you read Deuteronomy chapter 29, it explains thoroughly what happens to those who are cursed. And it is terrifying. We see from Scripture that ultimately to be cursed is to be separated from God. Not just death, but eternal separation from the Lord. This is strong language from Paul. Why are we cursed if our faith is in our, in our obedience to God? To answer this, Paul goes back to Deuteronomy, to Moses, and notice what he says. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. You know, if we skip down to verse 14, we see that word blessing. That's what we want. We want the blessing of God. And if you read what Moses says in Deuteronomy, he tells the people, if you obey God, you're blessed. And if you disobey, you're cursed. That's it. You obey, you're blessed. You disobey, you're cursed. What does it take to be cursed? One sin. And what Paul is saying here is that any obedience to God's law, if you're trusting in that to be saved then you have to obey the law of God 24 hours a day, seven days a week, every day of your life. Martin Luther says here, we must bear in mind that to do the works of the law does not mean only to live up to the superficial requirements of the law, but to obey the spirit of the law to perfection. But where will you find the person who can do that? Let him step forward. And we will praise him. God's standard for obedience is perfection. 
Paul says, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, you think about what Jesus says are the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And then the second, love your neighbor as yourself. How many of us can say that we have ever loved God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength? How many of us can say that we have genuinely loved our neighbor as ourselves? As the Bible says, there is no one righteous, not even one. In the book, The Pilgrim's Progress, one of the very first diversions Christian experiences on his journey to the celestial city is the village of morality. Mr. Worldly Wise Man advises Christian to go to this city to avoid the hardships of following Jesus. And in this town, in this city, he can easily rid himself of his burden of sin. However, while he's there, evangelist, one of the helpers that Christian has on his journey, reads the words of Paul. All who rely on the words of the law are under a curse. And it says that these words from evangelists made the hair of Christian's flesh stand up. Paul is wanting to paint a hopeless, helpless picture for any of us trying to earn our way to heaven. For anybody who says, I will be in heaven by my good deeds, by my good works, by the person I have been, by being a good person. We will never measure up to God's standard. Never. We will never be good enough. I say this not to discourage you, but to point you to a different way. A better way. God's way. In contrast to being of the words of the law and performing for God is to trust in Christ's performance for us by faith. And this is another key word, key word for us today is faith. Look at verse 11. Now that no one is justified by the law of God, law before God is evident for the righteous man shall live by faith. And then notice the contrast in verse 12. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Two ways to live. Trusting Jesus and trusting in ourselves. By receiving Christ's righteousness by faith or by attempting to make ourselves righteous by our good words. Notice that Paul says the word justified in verse 11. That's what we want. That's what we desperately need to be right with God. And the beauty of the gospel is that by faith in Jesus, we are A plus in God's eyes. Because of our disobedience to God's law, we are cursed. Because of Jesus' obedience, by faith, we are forgiven. Completely. I'm going to go back to Martin Luther here. So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, 
there I shall be also. Verse 13. Faith, faith is not blind. It is not generic. It is focused on an object, specifically Jesus. Notice these three words in succession in your Bibles. Christ redeemed us. I would struggle to find three better words in all the scriptures than those right there. If we're in such bad shape that not only disobeying God leaves us under a curse, but relying on obeying God's law for salvation places us under a curse, then someone has to intervene. We need a mediator. We need an advocate. And God himself has sent us an advocate in the man Christ Jesus. I love what Alistair Begg says here in one of his sermons. It went viral recently where he talks about the thief on the cross. Why is the thief on the cross in heaven? And the thief says, because the man on the middle cross said, I could be here. But he asked the question during that time. You know, I've heard over the church and being years in the church, I've heard it said, Possibly God could ask us one day, why should I allow you into my heaven when we pass away? And if God were to ask us that question, what would our answer be? The way he words it is, if you start the answer with I, you fail. You have failed the test. We've already read here in the scripture this morning. Cursed is everyone who relies on the works of the law. What is the only answer that we can give God if he were to ask us why I should allow you into my heaven? Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. When Jesus went to the cross, he took my sin with him to the cross. And by faith in him, I am righteous. Notice this word here, redeemed as well. To redeem means to purchase. Redemption has such a a rich meaning in Scripture from Israel, God redeeming Israel out of bondage in Egypt. We can talk about Ruth and Boaz. But for you and me, especially for the purposes of today, the Bible explains in Romans that as since we sin, we are slaves to sin. We cannot free ourselves from the curse that we're under. And the one who has freed us, the one who has redeemed us, is Jesus. The question then becomes, how did he do it? How did Jesus redeem us? Verse 13. Have it become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. I love how the J.B. Phillips paraphrase renders this. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law's condemnation by himself becoming a curse for us when he was crucified. For the scripture is plain, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. These are some of the most astounding, profound words in all the Bible. Christ became a curse. Not for himself. Christ committed no sin. He did so for you and for me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 says that Jesus actually became our sin on the cross. God treated Jesus 
as if he had lived our life. Most of y'all are probably familiar with the Jesus Storybook Bible. We love it in our home. We have so many children's books now in our house that we can't get to it as often as we used to. But I love what Sally Lloyd-Jones says here about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. This is how she describes it. Jesus knew that there was no other way. All the poisonous sin was going to have to go into his own heart. God was going to pour Jesus' heart into Jesus' heart, all the sadness and brokenness in people's hearts. He was going to pour into Jesus' body all of the sickness in people's bodies. God was going to have to blame his son for everything that had gone wrong. It was going to crush Jesus. R.C. Sproul, in his famous sermon on this passage, spoke the curse motif, which reverses the blessing of Numbers chapter 6, verse 24, and applies it to the cross and what Jesus experienced. He says, may the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you only in darkness and give you only judgment without grace. May the Lord turn his back from you and remove his peace from you forever. That's what Jesus endured on the cross. The scripture talks much about the cup that Jesus would endure. Jesus talked much about that. What was the cup? Churches talked about this over the centuries. You know, when Jesus talked about the cup, he wasn't talking about the physical torment that he would endure on the cross. Jesus was referring to himself bearing the wrath of God for our sin. Typically, when we think of Jesus on the cross, we sometimes we think about the, the absence of, of God, God not being there. Jesus does cry from the cross, God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But God was not absent at the cross at all. The Bible says that when Jesus was crucified, that there was darkness over the land. Typically, God is represented by light in the Bible, but darkness can also represent God. Think about when God made his covenant with Abraham. God's presence was represented by darkness. Isaiah talks about God giving us treasures of the darkness. God was present at the cross, but this time, for the first time and the only time, God was not there to bless Jesus, but to curse him. When darkness was over the land, Jesus was becoming a curse for us. Jesus redeems us by becoming a curse. Jesus takes our sins to the cross, and what do we get in exchange? Blessing. That's the last word we're going to look at this morning. Verse 14. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. What is the blessing of Abraham? We could spend a whole entire sermon on that. You could do 
a sermon series on that, but the short answer to be have the blessing of Abraham means to be a child of God. Look back at verse 7 of our chapter. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. To be a child of God is the highest honor. It is the greatest identity anyone could ever have. This is what people need to hear. Sunday after Sunday, week after week, year after year, they need to hear they are redeemed. Child of God. The parent who works 40 hours a week struggling to put bread on the table, trying to disciple their kids and often feels like they're failing. You need to hear this truth. You are redeemed. You are a child of God. The student who is unpopular at school for her faith and wonders what her purpose is in this world. You need to hear, you are redeemed. You are a child of God. To the older, the elderly believer, lonely, your body aches. Remember, you are redeemed. And because Jesus was forsaken, God can say to you, never will I leave you, and never will I forsake you. To the saint, battling besetting sins, doubting how God could love you, he cursed his son to claim you as his child. He is for you. He is working for your good. Let's go back to our sermon in the sins. Jesus Christ redeemed us By becoming a curse for us. This is the gospel. Jesus redeeming us by becoming a curse for us. As you leave today and as you start your week tomorrow, remember that you are redeemed. All because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. I don't have much for you this morning by way of practical application. It was all about what God has done for us in Christ. But I will say... Implore you to trust in Jesus. I talked about it earlier this morning, how what a privilege it is to, that we can be here to have Bible translated in our own language, to be sitting under the preaching of God's word, to hear the gospel preached. How many in the world don't have this? How many will die without having this? And you are here this morning hearing the gospel. Trust in Jesus today. And those of us who are believers already, already trusting in Jesus, let the cross be at the forefront of your mind, not just today, but every day in the price that Jesus had to pay. Live a cross-centered life. As Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 tells us, Therefore I urge you, brethren, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the last practical point I would say is think much of heaven. Think much of heaven. Yes, this world is cursed. We do have a cursed race. But Jesus will reverse it one day. He will abandon the curse. And as J.R. Tolkien once brilliantly said, all the sad things will 
generally become untrue. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he would give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the Father turns his face away. His wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon a cross, my guilt upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. I will boast in Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection. Why should I gain from His reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Pray with me. Lord, these words of Scripture stir in our hearts a renewed affection and love for you and what you have done for us. Lord, you did not spare your only son, but gave him up for us all. Praise you for it.